Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing Jesus' final three trials before Pilate and Herod and the call by the Jews for Jesus to be crucified. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we get started in prayer? Our Father in heaven, thank you for this group. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. I ask that you just open our hearts and our minds to your word. We are now fast approaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and I'm just so mindful of the tremendous grace and mercy that you've extended to all of us through the gift of your Son and the ability to approach you directly now because of what Jesus did for us. We're so thankful. We're thankful for your Word and all the revelation that you've given us through your Word And we just ask that the Holy Spirit speak to us in a way today that continues to change our hearts so that we can reflect Christ to those that we encounter. I ask that you speak through me and anyone else who speaks up today so we can all learn from one another and each take something away from this lesson today that resonates with us and that can help us change into the people that you want us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in Luke 23. We are fast approaching the end here. We have two more chapters to go, which will probably take us through the rest of this month. There's a lot in these last two chapters, so we'll just see how far we get this morning. Where we left off last week, the Sanhedrin had conducted three illegal trials trying to bring charges against Jesus. I walked through some of the things that were illegal about those various trials that they went through. Number one, they took Jesus in, and they didn't even have charges yet. They were still trying to trump up charges. In fact, they still don't have appropriate charges to bring him before the Roman authority to actually bring about his death. And so they're still working on that part. But you remember, if you just look at the end of Luke 22, it was where Jesus then said that he was the Son of God, And they view that as blasphemy against their Mosaic law. Now, they have no problem breaking the Mosaic law as I went through all the various ways that their trials are violating the Mosaic law. I went through that last time. But they view that him calling himself the Son of God is a violation of their law. That's not good enough to get him killed. They still want him killed. They're going to bring him to Pilate now. His headquarters were in Caesarea, but he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, really to help ensure peace. So they're going to bring him to Pontius Pilate now. And the reason is, as I've said, they don't have authority to kill him. Let me just show you a couple of verses. I'm going to be going over to John a couple of times this morning. So it's the next gospel over to the right. And let me just show you some verses in John 11. I'll start at verse 47. It says, therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man, talking about Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So these religious leaders, they were just consumed with their power and their authority. And they were so afraid that people were going to start placing their belief in Jesus Make him king, they'd lose their power and authority. And then let's drop down to verse 53. It says, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. 
So they wanted him dead. And then let's go over to just flip a few pages from John 11, go over to John 18. Let me show you something over there. John 18, verse 31. And this is part of what we're getting ready to read while he's with Pilate. We see at the end of verse 31, the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. So they're looking to Rome now, the Roman courts, to put Jesus to death because they don't have the ability to do that. They're going to have to now make up some false charges against Jesus that would get Rome interested in killing him. Charges that Jesus is someone who's trying to bring about the overthrow of Rome. And we're going to see some of that today, some of the false charges that they'll bring up to Pilate. That's where we are. So let's begin chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So Pilate, as I said, he's the Roman governor of Judea. Now, Pilate thinks he has authority over Jesus. I told you to keep your finger there in John. Let's look at John 19, verses 10 and 11. And this conversation with Jesus takes place in what we're looking at. Pilate therefore said to Jesus, you do not speak to me. You'll see Jesus doesn't want to speak to him. Do you not know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So Pilate thinks, you know, I represent Rome. I got all authority. I can do anything. And look what Jesus says in verse 11. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Now, who this he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin? It's unclear who the he is. It could be Judas, but Judas didn't really hand Jesus over. So maybe it's Caiaphas. Caiaphas is kind of leading this whole religious leader group, the Sanhedrin, trying to come up with charges against Jesus. So maybe that's who this he is. But in any event, Pilate thinks he's in charge, but we know he's not. Let's go back over to Luke. Luke 23, Jesus is in complete control. And again, remember, it's very early Friday morning, okay? This is Friday morning. He's going to be crucified later this day. And here comes trial number four. So we've been through three illegal trials. Now we're going to go into trial number four, which is with Pilate. And they began to accuse him. So this is the religious leaders. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying he himself is Christ a king. So they're trying to say, this guy's guilty of insurrection. He's trying to bring about an overthrow of Rome. He's telling people not to pay taxes. He's trying to say he's the king, not Caesar. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. In fact, remember, let's just flip back over to Luke 20. Just go back a few pages. Let's see what Jesus really said. Let's go to verse 20. They were trying to trap him, and they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch Jesus in some statement so to deliver him up to the rule and authority of the governor, meaning Rome. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth, which they're just playing games with him. But Jesus knows what's up. They ask him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, remember, the Jewish people hated paying taxes to the Roman government. They couldn't stand it, that their money was going to go to the Roman government to be spent however they wanted. They couldn't stand that. 
So verse 23, but Jesus detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius, which is interesting. Also tells me Jesus didn't have any money with him, didn't need any money. He's asking somebody, show me one of the coins. And he says, whose head and inscription does it have on it? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and marveling at his answer, they became silent. So he never said, don't pay taxes. And yet they're making this stuff up. Go back over to Luke 23. They're telling Pilate that Jesus was saying, don't pay taxes and trying to bring about an insurrection. Verse three, and Pilate asked Jesus saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, it is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's basically saying, you know, y'all got a problem with this guy, but there's no crime against Rome. You don't even have any witnesses. Y'all are just saying this. Pilate knows what's going on. There's no charges. There's no witnesses. You don't have anything. This man is innocent. So, no, I'm not going to do anything. Verse 5. But they, the religious leaders, kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people. See, they're trying to say Jesus is trying to overthrow Rome. He's teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they have no interest in justice. They wanted Jesus killed. But Pilate did fear any type of uprising that would get him in trouble with Rome. That was his concern. Let's go back over here to John again. I told you to keep your finger there. I'm going to go back over there a couple of times today. John 19, let's look at verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out. You can see the Jews were trying to say, look, Pilate, you got to do something. This guy is stirring up trouble and it's going to get you into trouble because he's getting all the people all bent out of shape. And, you know, there's going to be an uprising and then Rome's going to get really mad at you. Let's go back over to Luke 23. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Because remember, they had mentioned that he's been stirring people up from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. So now Pilate is thinking, hey, maybe there's a way out of this dilemma because he doesn't have jurisdiction over Galilee. That area is Herod's area. This is Herod Antipas. I've talked about him before. He's the Tetrarch of Galilee. Remember when Herod the Great died, his area was divided into four. That's why it's called Tetrarch, means one-fourth. Three of the areas went to his three sons, and then the fourth area went to this other guy. And Galilee, that is where Herod Antipas, that was his area. So Pilate's thinking, oh, I can get rid of Jesus. I'll just send him over to Herod. Let it be his problem, okay? Because Pilate doesn't want to deal with him. He doesn't see any guilt in him, but he doesn't want to have trouble in his area. So I'll get rid of him. But it turns out that Pilate was actually in Jerusalem for the Passover. Let's look at verse 7 again. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. He was there for the Passover. So end of trial four, 
No charges still. The Jewish leaders have brought a bunch of stuff up, but he's no threat to Rome. Pilate isn't worried about him. He's not a political or military leader. There's no crime against Rome, so still no charges. There's nothing yet that they can do to get Jesus killed by Rome. So now we're going to see the beginning of trial number five. So Jesus is going through all these trials. Trial number five, here it begins. Now trial five with Herod. Verse eight, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So Herod is not a believer, but he's looking for a freak show. He loves mystic religious rituals. Now, you remember who Herod is. Herod is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. He had John the Baptist beheaded because he was having an affair with Herodias. Herodias was married to Herod's brother, Philip. And John the Baptist said, that ain't right. You know, y'all can't be having this affair. Herodias is married to your brother. You know, y'all can't be doing that. Herodias got mad. Anyway, you know the story. Her daughter comes and dances at a party. And Herod said, I'll give you anything basically that you want. She goes, talks to her mother, Herodias. And Herodias says, get John the Baptist's head on a platter. So then Herod had to chop John the Baptist's head off. So that's that story that you'll recall. But as Herod started hearing about Jesus, he thought possibly Jesus could be John the Baptist arisen, become haunting, basically. Let me show you where that is. That's over in Luke 9. We saw that when we were earlier in Luke. Let me go over to Luke 9. It's in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, these miracles that Jesus was doing, And Herod was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Okay, so he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, because Herod is the one who, you look in verse 9, and Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about I hear such things? He'd been trying to see him, so now he finally gets the chance to see him, Luke 23. We'll go back over there. Verse 9, and Herod questioned Jesus at some length, But he answered him nothing. Jesus has nothing to say, okay? He's not saying anything. And of course, this fulfilled the prophecy, at least partially fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. And this is Isaiah, the prophet, writing, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This is with a capital H, so this is the Messiah. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus isn't responding to any of the charges. He's not going to answer Herod. He knows that Herod isn't looking for the truth. He's just looking for some magic tricks. So he's not going to answer him. Go back over to Luke 23. I'm now in verse 10. And the chief priest and the scribes were standing there accusing Jesus vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So now that's the end of trial five. Still no charges. They keep moving Jesus all over the place. They still can't get any charges or witnesses that would support a charge to bring about his death. Verse 12. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. 
for before they had been at enmity with each other. So now they form this friendship because both Herod and Pilate hated the way the Jewish leaders were trying to just intimidate the two of them, bringing these false charges against Jesus. So now they've become friends. What's interesting is we've also seen now the Pharisees and Sadducees, the two big Jewish religious groups who don't really care about each other, view what happens after your death, after your life here, they view that differently. So even though they're Jewish, they have different views on things. Remember the Sadducees view the first five books of the Old Testament as that's the real word of God and everything else after that is just sort of commentary. Remember we talked about that a few lessons ago. But in any event, they aren't even all aligned on their theology. And the Pharisees, remember, are very legalistic. They're the ones that have all the rules. They got a jillion rules, and if you do all these things, which nobody can do, but they got a million rules that even the religious leaders don't do. But they do them to try to make themselves look righteous. But even those two groups now have come together to kill Jesus. Okay? So you see some enemies coming together because of Jesus, but not in a good way. So trial five is over. And now we're going to move into trial number six. And this is the last and final trial. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. Verse 13, And Pilate summoned the chief priest and rulers and the people. And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. So Pilate and Herod have both confirmed that Jesus is innocent, even though Herod at one time wanted to kill Jesus. We saw that in Luke 13. I'll read that to you. I'll just go back a few pages over to Luke 13, because at one time he did want him dead, but he has no charges, so he knows he can't do it. Luke 13, 31, it says, Just at that time some Pharisees came up to Jesus and told Jesus, go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Okay, and we talked about that when we were studying Luke 13. You can go back and listen to that recording if you want to for more detail on that. But in any event, both Herod and Pilate see that Jesus is innocent. There's no charges. There's no witnesses. They've got to release him under Roman law. Verse 15 He says, no, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Verse 16, I will therefore punish him and release him. Well, that's illegal too. If there's no charges, he's innocent. You don't punish him. But he was doing that to try to get the crowd and the religious leaders at least appease them a little bit. So he's saying, well, I'll just punish him and then I'm going to release him. That's what he says. And he hoped that by punishing Jesus a little That would appease the religious leaders and get him out of this mess. I don't know what translations you all have. In my translation, verse 17, there's a marginal note, and it says that some manuscripts insert this following verse. It says, now he, Pilate, was obliged to release to the people at least one prisoner on Passover. That's not in the oldest manuscripts for Luke. But it is in both Matthew and Mark. So it did happen in any event. It's still factual. So let's go read what happened there in Matthew 27. Let me go back over there. We'll go back over to the left. 
first gospel, Matthew 27, and we'll take a look at that just to get a little more flavor for what's going on at this point. Matthew has a little more detail. And I'll go to Matthew 27, and I'll start at verse 15. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, that's at the Passover, the governor, meaning Pilate, was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted, anybody who the people wanted release. There was a custom for the Passover that Pilate would release one of the prisoners. Verse 16, and they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. He was known as a bad dude. I mean, he's a criminal. He was guilty of insurrection as well as murder. We'll see that in just a minute. Verse 17, when therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, so this is all the people, whom do you want me to release for you? This is Pilate thinking, now this is the way I can get out of it. They'll certainly want Jesus released and not Barabbas because Barabbas is a bad, bad guy. And that way I'll get out of this dilemma that I'm in. And so he's asking them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Verse 18, for he knew that because of envy, they had delivered him up. So Pilate knows the only reason Jesus is there is because the Jewish leaders are jealous of Jesus. They're afraid they're going to lose their power. And so Pilate's hoping he can end all this by presenting this to the people instead of the religious leaders. Verse 19, And when he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is Pilate, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, talking about Jesus. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him, because of Jesus. It's not clear. Maybe God sent the wife a message. Pilate should have related that dream back to there being no evidence for Jesus, but instead he takes this route, a political way of dealing with this problem, just trying to release a prisoner to the people. Verse 20, but the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So the Jewish leaders had swayed the crowd into saying that they wanted Jesus put to death and to release Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? There's still no charges. But they kept shouting all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitudes, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But Jesus he scourged and delivered over to be crucified. So he still views him as innocent. Okay, but he's worried about the people. He's worried about the crowd getting out of control and him getting in trouble with Rome. And so he had to make a choice. And we've all got to make a choice about Jesus. Everyone has to make a choice about Jesus. And his choice was to protect himself, protect his power, scourge Jesus. And Jesus is really bloodied up and then delivered over to them to be crucified, to be killed. Again, but he knows no charges. 
So let's go back over to Luke 23. Let's pick back up there. So that was a little more detail that we don't see in Luke's gospel. But we'll pick up so you'll see the Luke's version of this in verse 18. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. Verse 19. Here's where we pick this up. He, Barabbas, was one who had been thrown in prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. So Barabbas was headed for crucifixion. That cross that Jesus ended up on was probably there for Barabbas. So Jesus basically took probably Barabbas's place on that cross. And it may have been the other two criminals that were on crosses next to Jesus that we'll read about probably next week. They may have been involved in that insurrection with Barabbas. It would make sense because Barabbas was headed for crucifixion. Verse 20, And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. Verse 22, And Pilate said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I find in him no guilt demanding death. So he still doesn't believe there's anything. But he says, I will therefore punish him and release him. Again, if he's innocent, it's even wrong to punish him. And we see what he did. He had him scourged. Verse 23, but they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. So the crowd, they're urged on by the Jewish religious leaders. This mob mentality begins to take over. Pilate's afraid that they're going to start a riot, and he fears that then Rome is not going to be happy with him. So he has to choose between protecting an innocent Jesus or protecting himself and his career and his power. Because if there's a riot, then Rome's going to remove him from power. This gesture that we read about in Matthew where he wipes his hands off, he's using a Jewish gesture to try to say that he's innocent of Jesus' death. He washes his hands. You can read about that if you want in Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9. You just kind of say, this isn't my deal, this is your deal. And yet, it's amazing. We saw the response from the crowd. They said, Jesus' blood is on our hands and on the hands of our children. Sounds like Pilate was kind of trying to play it both ways. Oh, he was. He's being political. Yeah. What politician do you know that ever wants to make a difficult decision? He didn't want to make a decision. He wanted the people to make the decision. I wonder if he wondered if Jesus really was who he said he was. Might have, and, you know, it's kind of strange that he gets this message from his wife, this dream that she had. But, you know, he made his choices, just like Judas made his choices. And we have a sovereign God who has a plan, and if he doesn't put Jesus to death, we're all messed up because we got no Savior that died for our sins. So this is the plan. It's got to happen. But he's making his own choices here. He clearly is making his own choices And he doesn't care about Jesus. He didn't want to violate Roman law by putting an innocent man to death. But when it came to protecting an innocent man versus protecting himself, who did he choose? Himself. He chose himself. To this day, that is, I think, what a lot of people struggle with. Absolutely right. And we've all got to choose, everybody and anybody even listening to this recording. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to make it. There's only two groups. And I know that sounds very exclusive, and it is. 
I didn't write the rules. I'm just reading what God's word is. This is God's plan. And the Bible's clear. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to the Father. The only way. And our culture would have you now believe that there's all kinds of ways to God. It doesn't really matter. He's a loving God. And I've mentioned this before. I get asked all the time. You say you have a loving God with all this grace and mercy. How can your loving God put people to death, eternally separated from him because they failed to understand and place their faith in Jesus? They were at least trying. They were doing a different religious thing. They were going a different way. And I say, you're absolutely right. My God is full of grace and mercy, and he has offered you a free gift so that you are not separated from him for eternity. And it's your choice. Just like we see Judas had a choice, Pilate has a choice, we've all got choices. So what's your choice? And if you choose to reject him, that's your choice. Don't put it on him. He has extended grace and mercy, and it's available to you, a path to get right. And you cannot have it both ways. Can't have it both ways. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And if you want to go your own way and try to do it your own way, that's your choice. And it ain't going to go too good for you. It breaks my heart. It breaks God's heart. breaks Jesus' heart. That's why he came and died on the cross and went through all of this. Is for all of us, anybody who will place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But it's your choice. So let's go back to the text, Luke 23, verse 24. So with all this pressure from the crowd, Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. So he places the sentence on Jesus that he is going to be crucified. Verse 25, and he released the man that they were asking for, that's Barabbas, for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to their will. So Jesus, as I read to you in Matthew 27, he's scourged. I mean, he's beaten. He is put through severe pain and suffering. And now it's about noon on Friday as we move into verse 26. Okay, it's about noon. And I also want to point out that many, many prisoners died from that scourging before they even made it to their crucifixion. Many people didn't survive the scourging. People would be beat up so bad. Verse 26, And when they led him away, they're leading Jesus away, they laid hold of one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. So Jesus was so beat up and so brutally beaten, he could not carry his own cross. So they get this guy named Simon, a Cyrenian, that area is in North Africa, Libya. He's probably a Jew who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and was just walking by, and all of a sudden the Roman guards say, hey, dude, you're carrying his cross. So he's called into service. It's ironic to me that the person who is picked to carry Jesus' cross is named Simon. Where is Simon Peter? Where's Simon Peter? The other thing that's interesting about this Simon, and you got to kind of hang with me here, you got to kind of piece some parts of the puzzle together to follow this. 
But this guy is more than likely, I'm not going to tell you this is the absolute way it is because it's not clear. You're going to say I'm going to piece some things together, but I can make a pretty good support for what I'm about to tell you. So this guy, probably a Jew from Libya, he's there because it's the Jewish Passover. He's Jewish and he's called to now carry Jesus's cross. And so he's carrying Jesus's cross and he's seeing what's happening to this man, Jesus, as they're going out, you know, to put him on the cross. And he probably stays and witnesses the whole thing that we're going to read. And so at some point, he probably came to faith. And let me show you some verses how I get there. Okay, first go over to Romans. So you'll go to Luke, John, then you get to Acts and then we're in Romans and let's first look at Romans 16, 13. In that verse, this is Paul writing, and as he's closing out this letter to the Romans, he's saying, greet these people, greet these various people for me. And in verse 13, he says, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. The NIV actually, I think, translates that a little better because it says, who has been a mother to me also, meaning Rufus's mother has served Paul, okay, has really helped Paul in his ministry. Now, you wonder, who's this Rufus? Why are you even talking about this Rufus? Okay, this Rufus is possibly the son of Simon, the Simon who carried Jesus's cross. Now, how do I get that? Let me now take you over to Mark 15. Mark is the gospel right before Luke. So let's go look at Mark 15. I love these things. You just got to piece these little pieces together. Mark 15, verse 21. This is Mark's account of what we're reading in Luke 23. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. And we know from the other where he came from. And his name is Simon of Cyrene the father of Alexander and Rufus, that he might bear the cross. So I wouldn't bet my life on this, but what it appears is then later, here's Paul writing in Romans, greet Rufus for me, which the people there who he's writing to in Romans would have known Rufus, would have been someone who was a leader in the church. So that leads me to believe that Simon, at some point, probably came to faith through watching all of this, as well as his son and his wife. Anyway, maybe, maybe not, but very interesting, because not much else is known about these two Rufuses in the Bible here. So let's go back over to Luke 23. I don't know if y'all like those little things like that or not, but there's so many little dots that all connect in the Bible, and you just got to be paying attention. Things aren't in here just haphazard. There's a reason. These are God's words. Okay, I'm back over in 23, and I'm in verse 27. And there were following behind Jesus a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Undoubtedly, these are some of the same people who embraced Jesus in his triumphant entry that we read about as he came into Jerusalem on the donkey on Monday. But now they're disappointed He wasn't the conquering king that they were looking for. Verse 28, but Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So he's warning them that they're really the true victims because they've been deceived by the religious leaders. 
some of these may have even been professional mourners. I've talked about that before, how when they would have things like this, they would hire professional mourners to cry. So they may have just been some of those just doing their duty, but it could have been some of these were sincere, really sympathetic people. Some of them may have been believers, probably most of them not believers because they were part of the crowd crying out for him to be killed. I do want to make it clear that these are not the women who had been with Jesus through his ministry. And the reason I'm very sure of that is because you see this in verse 28. Jesus turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem. So these are people in Jerusalem. There aren't people from Galilee. And the women who have been with Jesus throughout his ministry and who we're going to read more about, they're going to be the ones that go after his death and burial. They're going to return back to him. They're from Galilee. And he says in verse 29, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. These are barren women. And being barren was one of the worst stigmas a Jewish woman could think of. And here Jesus is saying those barren women will actually be blessed because there is judgment coming. Verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So, Jesus is telling them judgment is going to come, and it's going to come on non-believers. This is actually a prophecy of the tribulation in Revelation 6.16. Let me just take you over there because that's where you'll see this. Mentioned again, Revelation 6.16. I'm over there now. I'll just turn over there real quick. I'm reading from Revelation 6.16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So these are unbelievers, and now they're trying to hide. They know their day of judgment is here, and it's too late to be saved. That's in Revelation talking about the really bad time of the tribulation. Okay, let me go back over to Luke 23, and given the time, let me just wrap this up with the next verse. For if they do these things in the green tree... What will happen in the dry? So I think this is probably a reference to Jesus being the green tree full of life. And Israel will now become dead, barren, just a dead nation. The temple is going to be destroyed in A.D. 70. The Jewish nation was chosen by God to be the light for the rest of the world to find the one true God, and they have failed in their mission. And now the mission is for Jesus to proceed with the church. There will be a time for Israel, but right now, if you were here when I talked about the prophecy in Daniel, we're in that interim parenthesis period between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, where we are in the church age. That's where we are. I've talked about that in length. I won't go into that today. Judgment is coming, and judgment is coming for all people who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ, and you don't get a second chance at it. you got to do it on this side while we're still alive. Let me stop there. I've got a lot more in this chapter, but that's a good place to stop, and we can pick up next week from there and continue on. It's clear Jesus was innocent, but what's interesting is even through the six trials that we walk through, and even before that, as he was being persecuted, he never tried to incite an overthrow of the government. 
He never tried to become some type of uh, advocate for overthrowing Rome, even though he knew, he even told the people to pay their taxes to Rome, even though those taxes were being used to maintain a government that was eventually going to come and kill him. And so that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He wants us here to work in and through us to help build his kingdom, not to overthrow the government. And our government and our cultures all around the world, if you don't see it now, I mean, they are in total turmoil. It is a mess. Look what's going on everywhere, including this country. And it's sad. It's very sad because America has been blessed, I think, more than any other nation ever in the history of the world. And yet our culture does not embrace God, wants to do everything it can to get away from God. And we have been left here after we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And we are here to help bring others and share the good news of the gospel and bring others so that they can place their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved and not have to go through this terrible judgment that is coming. That's why we're here. That's what Jesus wants to do, work in and through us. That's why he left the disciples. Hey, it's a crazy plan. I mean, God becoming human, living a perfect life for 30 years, taking 12 apostles, pouring his life into 12 men for three years, dealing with our sin on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection for three days, and then ascending to heaven and saying, I'm leaving it with you all. And the only reason that we have come to faith is because those apostles did what Jesus asked him to do. They went and spread the gospel, spread the news, spread the word, wrote down those who were called to be writers of the scripture, wrote it down for us. And now we're called to do the same thing. And so how are we doing in what we've been called to do? How are we doing? We're going to all face Jesus as Christians at the judgment seat of Christ, not for our salvation. We're going to have a review of how did we do? And that's where we get our heavenly rewards and whatever positions we're going to have in the millennial kingdom and eternity. I want to face Jesus, and I just hope I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But I'm also extremely concerned about that review. And I've said it before because I think about it. I think of all the missed opportunities I've had. You know, it's not too late. It doesn't matter what we did last week, yesterday. It's what are we going to do when we walk out of this door today? or when we finish listening to this lesson. How are we going to change? How are we going to try to tune in more and listen for Jesus' voice telling us what he wants to do, when to speak, how to act, what to do, and just be obedient? And Larry, this is the sanctification process. This is sanctification, what you're describing. Yes, it is. It's going through tough times. You want a good model of somebody who really made it through and got through the sanctification process, look at Paul. We may think that we go through tough times. Here Paul is an apostle. Jesus appeared to him, okay? Jesus appeared to Paul and called him personally to become an apostle and told Paul to go out and build churches and spread the gospel. And Paul was working hard doing all of that continue to work in his tent building business to support himself so people wouldn't think he was just doing it to get their money, was persecuted, beat. We've read the list of everything that happened to him, thrown in prison multiple times. 
And yet he never complained even when he was in prison. Now for me, if Jesus would have appeared to me and told me to go be an apostle to the Gentiles and then all of a sudden I'm in prison, I'm going to be going, what is up? I mean, you want me to go be doing that? How am I getting that done when you got me in prison? Something's not right. You know, I'd have been going, what is up? You've let me down. I'm not doing what you want me to do. But Paul never complained. It's like, hey, you're the powerful one. If I'm in prison, it's because you want me here. And he's chained to guards. He's telling them the gospel. And my point of that is to say, if I could just get to the point where when I'm going through trials, have the joy that Paul had in prison. Like, I'm going through a tough time, but Jesus, this is where you want me? You're trying to teach me something? Just teach me something through this. Continue to mold me, shape me. It's like, I've mentioned this to you before too. When Michelangelo was asked, how did he make David, the statue of David? I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'm not a museum kind of looking at that kind of stuff at all. But you see the statue of David, it is moving. I've never seen anything like that. But he was asked, how did you do it? How did you do it? It's so beautiful. It's amazing. He said, I just removed everything that wasn't David. And that's what the sanctification process is. It's Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, removing everything from us that is not Jesus. And the way that happens is going through trials. you got to go through difficult times. And some people don't make it. That's like the seeds. Remember the parable of the sower? And some people going to church, thinking they're Christians, when things get really tough or one of their children is going through a difficult time or, you know, they lose a spouse or a family member. I don't want any part of that. If that's God, I don't want any part of it. They never had saving faith. The people who get through the trial and on the other side of it, they're even closer to God. And they've learned some things about themselves. They've learned some things about God. They've learned some things that need to be changed. And they're transformed through the process. That's true Christianity, true saving faith. And when you can make it through those trials and look back, we ought to be encouraged. And I've talked to many people. I had a dear friend recently lost his wife. And I saw his faith grow through the whole thing. Both of them, even going through, she was about to die and even watching both of them grow in their faith as they went through that terrible thing and then his grieving and everything afterwards. But to see where he is now, it's like, dude, it is so clear to me that you are truly a Christian because look where you are now after going through that. And if you didn't have saving faith, you'd be rejecting God. You'd say, I don't want any part of it. So those trials are there for a reason. And as I've said many times, People don't grow in their faith when they win the lottery. They don't become Christians when they win the lottery. On the other hand, we as Christians, we got a job to do. Because somebody said something to us, we didn't just wake up one day and, hmm, maybe I'll read my Bible today and become a Christian. Somebody said something. Somebody had an impact on us. And so what kind of impact are we having on others? How are we helping them get to the place that, we finally got to where we could place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The other thing about mentioning Paul is that he was the worst of the worst. <laughs> he was killing Christians. That's what's just so amazing. And he now is the pinnacle of the apostle. Wrote almost half the New Testament. Yeah, it's just 
amazing. And the other thing to me that's amazing is the plan that you talk about. Christ came right during the Roman times when they built the roads and they had the aqueducts and they had travel. And Rome was the America of today. I mean, it was the all-powerful, all-everything. It was it. They had the I mean, governments in place and they had everything. Yeah. And look just, what's happened to them yeah. as they rejected God. And today you look to... Look what's happening to our country well, as and you they look at reject today God. With all of the technology and the communication and you just wonder, the message is out there and everybody has access to the message. Uh-huh. They don't want to hear it. They're more worried about themselves. And certainly our government leaders are very much like, I don't mean everybody, I'm sure there's one or two somewhere. Anyway, the bulk of them, it's all about their power and their money and their position and power, and don't confuse them with God. Pilot. It's pilot. Lots of pilots. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.